0: This is is the the WTF-Bach podcast. Work those fingers. This is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. WTF-Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. Join WTF-Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. And now, now here's WTF-Bach.
1: Hi, it's Evan Shinners with the incredible claim that I am WTF Bach. The goal of this podcast is to get you to hear Bach the way I hear Bach. The whole idea behind this podcast is to help you appreciate this ornate, this elaborate music by breaking it down, dissecting it, and then putting it together again. Upon rehearing this music, you will now know exactly more or less what to listen for and come away with new appreciation. I believe in doing this because Bach's music, while capable of being appreciated on the surface, only becomes more profound with renewed perspective. So first off, thank you always to my listeners for writing me and sharing with me videos and Bach pieces that you would like to have analyzed, feedback. This is really how I stay afloat in this process. Otherwise, I would feel like I'm speaking into a void, which is sometimes how it can feel while I'm making such an arcane podcast. So thank you for listening and thank you for reaching out. This is the penultimate fugue in what has been a progressive series of podcast episodes, meaning if you want to get the gist of where this fugue falls in Bach's overall narrative in the art of fugue, or if you find yourself at a loss understanding some of the terms I've thrown out, try listening from episode one or some previous episodes. I do, however, try to make each episode as palatable as I can for anyone joining from this point on, so suffice to say... Johann Sebastian Bach has been spinning out fugues based on a single theme, one single melody, that yields a piece so inconceivably different from the next. Yet every single fugue is in D minor, every fugue with the exception of one is in four voices, every fugue with the exception of one is in duple time. That's one, two, one, two, or one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And now this is fugue number 13, so the question on all our minds is, of course, how will Bach make this one interesting? As we know, there's a different technique within each what we call chapter of the Art of Fugue, and within these chapters, each fugue seems to get more complicated. So fugues 12 and 13 are a chapter of what we call mirror fugues. And as we saw with Fugue 12, and we will see again with this fugue, the fugues, the voices within the fugues, will be turned upside down and played again, upside down, and make sense. Hence, Though this chapter only bears the titles fugues 12 and 13, we actually have four different fugues here. You see that? He has two fugues that are turned on their heads, and it yields two more fugues. It's really interesting to imagine that Bach, with his quest to spin a universe out of a grain of sand, has risen to yet a new height of creativity and yielding material with these mirror fugues. He's able to, in these fugues, create exactly twice the amount of music with one thought. Get it? His one musical thought can actually be played upside down and becomes a new musical thought, a coherent one at that. It is interesting because I got two notes from people who were curious to know what would happen if I played, say, a different fugue on its head. Would it make the same coherent sense that fugue 12 does? Can you do this with any Bach piece? Well, why not try it? Here's the first fugue played on its head. that's pretty interesting. I mean, it's certainly not uninteresting, but without insulting Paul, it kind of sounds like Hindemith. But you know what I like about that is there's a lot that you can recognize in that because all the themes are inverted and in fact we hear a few of the themes as we might hear later on in the Art of Fugue when he does start inverting the theme, but we can tell that Bach didn't really compose that particular contrapuntus with the idea that it would be inverted. Bach's counterpoint is usually interesting anyhow, so that rhythmically it's just enough to hear the interplay of of the rhythm, really, between the voices. But again, it doesn't quite sound like coherent music as much as that twelfth fugue does when turned on its head. That's just remarkable that, you know, Bach has the capability to do that. And now that we are in fugue 13, this is another mirror fugue. And I want to remind you that Bach never used this term mirror fugue. We say that now, but he called them rectus and inversus. Latin, right? This fugue, fugue 13, we will see again has three voices. I mentioned earlier that has only happened once so far in the Art of Fugue with fugue number eight, but now fugue 13 again has three voices. And these will be the only two fugues in the Art of Fugue that will have three voices. The rest of the fugues will have four voices. So let's picture this three-voice cake, right? Frosting on the top, chocolate in the middle, and cookies on the bottom. Three layers. Great. So if we want to invert it, just as we did Fugue 12, now the cookies are at the top and the frosting is on the bottom, but the chocolate? Well, the chocolate is still in the middle. Now why didn't that happen to Fugue 12? Well, Fugue 12 was in four voices. If you invert one, two, three, four. One correlates to four, two to three, three maps onto two, right? Not a single number will invert onto itself, but with three, or with any odd number for that matter, the middle number will always map onto itself. And though it's perhaps impossible to convey with a cake analogy what really happens with the inversion, this isn't a simple rearranging of the voices in a fugue. It's not like he takes the melody in the soprano and puts the same melody in the bass. He takes the melody itself flips it, flips the direction of the individual voice, and then shifts the layers of the voices. So how actually could I convey that in the cake world? Well, it would be like taking every bit of the center of each layer and putting the center bits on the outside and then moving the edges of each layer into the center of each layer. This is a truly inverted cake here from every perspective. And we know, I've said before, that within each chapter, the fugues get more complicated in principle. So how could it be true that a three-voice fugue could follow a four-voice fugue? Bach somehow has to make fugue 13 use a similar principle to fugue 12 but be more complicated. So what Bach came up with is rather than a true inversion of voices 1, 2, and 3, which would be 3, 2, and 1, he does something like 3, 1, and 2, and it's for this reason that you can't really call Fugue 13 a mirror fugue. I'm pretty sure if you go under the Wikipedia entry of mirror fugue, it will mention that Fugue 13 isn't technically a mirror fugue, because if you hold up a mirror to either the rectus or inversus, it doesn't create the corresponding fugue. If you held up a mirror to each individual voice, however, each individual voice within the fugue is inverted. That's why I like to think of Fugue 12 as a true mirror fugue, whereas Fugue 13 is like a juggled, scrambled Picasso of a of a crazy arrangement with the same principle but somehow a little more involved. And hence, it is in this way that Bach can allow a three-voice fugue to follow a four-voice fugue in the chapter of mirror fugues because this technique of inversion is more involved than it was in the previous fugue. This
0: is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach. This, this is the podcast about... about- Podcast. JS <S. Bach, baby. Podcast. WTF Bach. WTF Bach. Bach. Kissed? Johann Sebastian Bach the Podcast the podcast. The podcast. About Johann Sebastian Bach. The podcast about all things, Johann Sebastian Bach. The podcast you've always been waiting for. The podcast.
2: Entirely dedicated and devoted to all things, Johann Sebastian Bach.
1: Now, let's go back to 1750, July 1750. Bach <laughs> is dead. The family sees the artifugue has been uh, underway in the publication and the engraving upon copper plates of all these fugues. And the family was rather confused as to how this giant project was supposed to be completed. Eleven fugues had been engraved and already in their proper order, but in putting these mirror fugues into the artifugue after Fugue 11, they start immediately with an error. They start with the inverted fugue of fugue 12, right? Fugue 12, the first mirror fugue, should begin with the rectus version, right? Showing, showing that the theme goes up first before it can be upside down, and only then is fugue 12's inversion. However, in the original print, we see that the family put first the inverted version, and then the rectus version. Now, they did the same thing with fugue 13 which is a bit of a cause of some controversy, because some people assume that both of those are errors, that in each of the mirror fugues, in fugues 12 and 13, the rectus should be followed by the inversus. But if we look at the autograph score, where Bach prints both fugues one on top of each other, and this is indeed the method with which Bach created such a puzzle, so that he could see both fugues evolving at the same time, we see that fugue 12 is printed with the rectus on top and the inversus on bottom. Well, what about 13? Well, it's inverted. He prints the inversus on top, or rather, he doesn't print it, he pens it in the autograph score. He pens the inversus up top and the rectus on the bottom. The controversy I mentioned is mostly in the Henley edition, which is edited by David Moroni, whom we heard in the last podcast. He's an outstanding scholar. He seems to disagree with this. He thinks that no matter what it says in the autograph, the inversus follows the rectus. The Baron Rider, which is a reprint of the original edition, will print the original edition but they make an editorial note assuming that such an order is indeed a mistake only in contrapuntus 12. I happen to agree with the baron rider and think that only one mistake happened in the Bach estate which means that fugue 12 should be rectus then inversus and fugue 13 should be inversus then rectus because in my mind the idea here is that what follows a mirror is an inverted mirror and so that's what we're first going to hear today. Fugue 13, the inversus in three voices. Could that be other than Robert Hill, a friend of the show, with that inimitable way that he plays Bach. That's just a remarkable performance. I have to mention that on the piano that one chord there, which is G in the bass, C sharp in the alto, and B flat up in the soprano, I can reach that on this little keyboard that I'm playing here. On the piano, I cannot reach that. that. That I really actually have to cheat and use the pedal there. On the harpsichord, he's able to actually trill in that metal voice like this. So I don't know what's going on there. If he's got a third hand, I have to maybe ask him the question. Anyways, the question on the astute listener's mind is how does a theme like this... relate to our Art of Fugue theme, which is this. Well, I told you that we heard the inverted fugue. So saying, how does that theme map onto this uninverted theme isn't really fair. We have to map it onto this, which is the inverted theme. Uh, Well, let's try it. So first we heard this. seems easy enough to recognize that those last four notes are the same notes. The good student of Bach will note that the 13th fugue begins on an upbeat, and one. And most of the fugues in the Art of Fugue begin right on the downbeat, that's just one. So if I were to try and play these together I have to take the upbeat into account and begin my inverted th- Theme in the left hand here playing after the upbeat. So we get something that sounds like this. And as we could see, those themes do line up in sort of this, I don't know, swervy, swervy way, but it happens. though this theme in Fugue 13 goes up at the beginning, really we're interested in that larger perspective of the interval which goes from this A here down to that D there. So we do get this descent of a perfect fifth which is sort of the architecture of the inverted theme. Now I'm going to play the rectus theme for you to show you that it is indeed the opposite. It sounds like this. And indeed, we had those four notes at the end, which we know very well is these four notes. Okay, so I will do the same thing in mapping our very well-known Art of Fugue theme onto the rectus. So not only is there confusion on which of the 13th contrapunt high go first but in fact which one really is inverted and which one really isn't because it's misleading to think that the one that goes like this down at the beginning as does our third contrapuntus with the descent of this perfect fourth it's misleading to think that this is an inverted because really we're interested in this larger interval here like i said and we can think of this initial descent as part of this grand elaboration, which Bach is using to sort of celebrate this this triad here. You know, the, the triad, which is the theme of the Art of Fugue, he celebrates it like this. Okay, no more wasted words. Let's hear that rectus version. And, well, who could that be other than in front of the show, Chris Thiele. Uh Besides Chris Thiele playing the mandolin part on that was Jeremy Kittle playing the violin part, which was the alto voice, and Armand Hirsch playing the guitar, which was the bass or the tenor voice. Now, one funny story about Mr. Hirsch, Mr. Armand Hirsch. Uh, actually, Armand was the first person to help me record a studio recording. He was the producer and the engineer on my first two studio recordings. I recorded the Bach Toccatas and a bunch of Renaissance and early classical and Baroque harpsichord music on the piano with Mr. Hirsch but uh, I think that's an excellent recording. It was performed live on the show Live From Here. I don't think you could ask all three of those gentlemen if Bach is the best thing they do. I think they each excel in different areas in music, Uh, but certainly they really knocked out that counterpoint live. Very impressive stuff. That recording and the inversus are available on YouTube, though they are incorrectly labeled. The rectus is called the inversus, so not only is there confusion in the Bach estate, there's confusion in the YouTube estate, but my listeners will surely sort that out. How is Bach, however, going to make this actually more complicated? How is he going to take this three-voice fugue and apply a sort of mirror-like technique and yield yet more complicated results? Well, in the inversus, the middle voice was the first to enter, and the fact that the top voice is the first to enter in the rectus shows that this is not a simple inversion standing on its head like we saw. But what about the entries of the individual voices? Okay, so first, in the rectus, we have this. Which, as we know, is the rectus, it's the right side up theme. But the answer, the second voice to come in, in the rectus fugue, is this. which is the inverted theme. Not only is it the inverted theme, it's actually the very voice which begins the inverted fugue. Okay, so I'm going to say that again because I even confuse myself when talking about it. We have, in the rectus fugue, the dukes. Now listen to the Comes. That second voice there, that comes, that answer, was the first voice to enter in the inverted fugue. Okay, you may have to rewind that to wrap your head around what I have said. I hope I said it correctly. I'll check before I release this. In the inverted fugue, the voices go like this. Inverted. The answer is rectus. And the third voice is inverted. Okay. Okay. Now, let's go to the rectus. In the rectus, we have just the opposite of that. Rectus. Inversus. And rectus. In this way, Bach is making this more complicated because in that 12th contrapuntus, all of the entrances were entering in the same direction. They were all going up and in the inverted fugue they were obviously going down, but this in this really snake-like twisted 13th fugue we have everything going every which way and not only is it not turned on its head it's sort of turned inside out. Now as I mentioned in the 12th fugue, Bach will have to choose exactly the colors of the harmonies when he's inverting the texture because a minor chord will map onto theoretically a major chord and vice versa but there is one particularly striking passage that I find, and that occurs at bar 25. In the inverted fugue, we have this, that's C minor to F major. And C minor, I mean C minor, this whole art of fugue is in D minor, and to have such a strong landing on c minor like that i'm pretty sure that's the only place in the entire piece where he has such a strong arrival on c minor well if we think where c minor would map onto let's just think about the letter c right so the key of d is the basis is the axis of the art so if we're going down to c that would mean that the mirror image of it would move up to e and minor would map to major right so you would have in bar 25, in the corresponding rectus fugue, you would have something that's major. It might sound like this. right? That's E major going to B minor. Again, if we're looking at D as our axis here, I said that in the previous fugue, it went from C minor to F major, so F major is one, two, three notes above D, so we have to go three notes below D, one, two, three to B, and F major would map onto B minor, and indeed, that bar there we do have B minor. But actually, bar 25 in the rectus fugue is not E major, it's E minor. That means that when composing this rectus fugue, he wrote E minor, and Deciding not to keep that strict mirror image preserved that minor mode there in both of the fugues in bar 25 and has E minor in bar 25 in the rectus and C minor in bar 25 in the inverses. It's a very interesting decision for Bach. We can see his aesthetic mind at work there, which is is really a privilege. In fact, I will play, as I did in the previous episode, I will play the strict, the computerized inversion of at least one of these fugues here, just so you can hear how sort of odd and awkward it sounds. bother you with that entire contrapuntus played as a computer would play a Bach fugue inverted. But it is really interesting to note that Bach had to do a lot from that which is the strict mathematical computerized inversion of one of the fugues, inversus or rectus, I even forget myself by now, that just shows the true genius at play that I could take those individual voices and hold up a mirror to the individual voices but when i take this entire fugue and just hit the invert button on my computer it makes such a such a strange piece of nonsense i don't know if you remember the computerized inversion from the previous mirror fugue episode fugue number 12 but the computerized version seemed a lot more comprehensible than that i mean that just sounded like like again absolute craziness i wasn't going to say hindemith twice We do on this show, however, need to show you both versions, both rectus and inversus, in two different speakers at the same time. So grab a drink, because this one is gonna be a trip. What I like about doing this, other than the fact that this is hopefully the only place in the world that is doing this, is that you can take out one of your speakers and hear the appropriate composition. You could take out your left speaker, for example, and hear the composition going on in your right earphone and vice versa. And when you put both earphones back together, you sort of hear the voices coming together and pushing apart in inversion. You see them going like a mathematical formula against each other and toward each other and against each other. And again, you see the principle at play, but when you just isolate one speaker, when you take out one of your headphones, you hear the final version of what Bach morphed this thing into. It's very interesting. Try it. It was interesting for me because I've never done that. And what I found interesting about that is that playing both those compositions against each other at the same time in different speakers actually, to me at least, sounded more pleasant than playing one of the compositions mathematically inverted like I was earlier showing you and I cut off before I let the whole few go. All right, now let's hear Robert Hill play the other one that he didn't play before. To close this episode, I have to mention the one peculiar thing about this 13th fugue, which does not exist with any other fugue in the Art of Fugue. That is that Bach made an arrangement of this for two harpsichords. And this is extremely interesting because this itself caused more confusion in the publication, in the printing of the Art of Fugue. The family didn't know exactly if the two harpsichord version was supposed to be included in all these variations on this Art of Fugue theme. It's not. It's an arrangement for two harpsichords. Bach often did that. Bach would often take a piece of music and arrange it for a different instrumentation. He did this with his violin works, his cello works. We see arrangements of violin concertos for harpsichord. The fact that this occurs in two harpsichords is worthy of its own discussion in its own episode, which I believe will follow this episode, and in that episode I can play the two harpsichord version against this, which is, it's very, it's fascinating. It's the same music, but yet instead of playing in three voices, we're now playing in four hands. So Bach adds this this other voice, which I, I love hearing that. I love hearing that he has a three-voice fugue in his head, but yet he can somehow add another voice, another obbligato voice to it. Uh, it's just just fascinating, this genius at work. That next episode, I suppose, will be a bonus episode. I can cover anything that I missed in this 13th fugue, and then Gosh, look at that. We have one canon left and one fugue, and that's the 14th fugue. That is the last fugue. That is the unfinished fugue. That is the fugue in four subjects. That is the ultimate. And here we are. We're almost there, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you so very much for listening. You
0: are listening to the WTF Box podcast a specific piece of box analyzed by Evan, just yes, for you, send us a donation on Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at WTF Bach. Help keep this podcast alive. Support us. Find the links in the episode description. What a, what a great day. day to be listening to WTF Bach. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Write that view. you. Be that for you. Want that.